Welcome to Catechesis, also known as Cats and Jesus. Catechesis is Greek for teaching, and that's what our hosts, Reverend James Goodlett and Reverend Adam Roberts, will do with this podcast, Teach. Each week, they will study, discuss, and dissect the week's scripture and spoken word. Catechesis is a digital outreach of First Presbyterian Church of LaGrange. Welcome your hosts, James and Adam. Welcome to Catechesis, a production of Lewis and Broad Media. My name is James Goodlett. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church in beautiful downtown LaGrange, Georgia, here at the corner of Lewis and Broad Streets. I hope this podcast finds you well. Adam Roberts could not join us for this edition of catechesis he is under the weather so i hope he gets to feeling better soon but layton parker is in studio layton it is now starting to feel a little bit like fall outside and that's exciting is it not it is but my youth complained that it was really cold today but it it's been 90 and ridiculousness like 3000 percent humidity it feels amazing outside take your, it up take it up with them your youth are wrong speaking of your youth um want to say hello to your youth who are listening to catechesis i know that there are some classes out there that have actually been using this as an intro tool for the scripture of the week so shout out to them on this beautiful fall day on this chilly, mourned fall day. Golly, it felt amazing outside. I'm such a big fan. Football season has started as well, so for those of you who are Georgia Bulldog fans, congratulations. Life is good. For those of you who are like me, suffer in the depths of Falcon and Yellow Jacket fandom, we covet your prayers. Speaking of prayers, that is the subject of today's podcast. I can say this, though, before I dive into that, that uh, season four of Loose and Broad is coming up. Starting in October, we're excited. Layton, at what point will we be announcing to the thousands of people waiting with bated breath what season four will be all about? When can we announce that officially? I know you've done a little tease on social. I'll announce it next week. Next week, there you have it. If you do not tune into this podcast for any other reason to, other than to hear phenomenally profound insights, if that, if that isn't, uh, if that doesn't float your boat here, at least next week you will hear what season four of Lewis and Broad is going to be all about. And I can tell you it's exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. It's, you've done a lot of great work getting ready for it. And I know you're excited about sharing with the congregation at large what's going on. Always. So, stay tuned to our social media and our website, lewisandbroad.org and at lewisandbroad. Look forward to sharing with y'all. All right, let's go back to First Timothy. That's what we're doing here. This is the second week of First Timothy, the second and final week that... We will be focusing upon First Timothy here. 
at Fresh Prez and on the Lewis and Broad Catechesis podcast. And just as a review for those of you who did not listen to last week's episode, which you can find on lewisandbroad.org again. First Timothy is an interesting text. It is a challenging text. I would dare say a difficult text. Offers a lot in the way of instruction to the early church for how they were to organize themselves, how they were to live. But it also contains some texts that might be dissonant from what we know and experience in the world today. Saying things about the way that women should be silent in church and how they should wear their clothing and adorn themselves and comments about slavery and masters and those sorts of things. Again, we have to remember that these scriptures were written in a particular context. Now, what we do with those scriptures in the here and the now It's important to discuss those in community and how they still speak to us today. But Scripture was written in a time and in a place that was very different than where we are right now. Still, these Scriptures have been appropriated to support different denominational beliefs, different so-called Christian beliefs, different ways of being in the world. And again, I've said this before, you can really use any scripture to support pretty much any cause, and that, that historically has taken place. So let's not forget listeners, that when we are in the business and the work of interpreting Scripture, let's look at what Scripture says as a whole. What does it say holistically? How does a Scripture like 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says women should be silent in church, jive with the fact that the first proclaimers of the Christian gospel were in fact women? They juxtapose one another. So how do we interpret all of Scripture? What is the lens by which we see the texts that we approach? We would do well to remember that when we approach any Scripture, including the one for today. Now, 1 Timothy, written probably late 1st century A.D., a portion of what are called the pastoral letters or the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, those sorts of texts, written to address particular context, written to address what it means, what it looks like to be the church in a time of empire, in a time of Roman empire in Asia Minor. Don't know exactly who wrote 
these scriptures. Traditionally, people say it was Paul writing to someone named Timothy. We don't know that. It is debated. But for consistency's sake, we'll just call the writer Paul. It was very consistent and typical for writers to use the name of their teachers, of of the people who influenced them. So it wasn't like there was identity theft going on here or anything like that. This was common practice for somebody to write as if they were Paul. So we'll just call the writer Paul. And Paul was writing... Again, in a time of tremendous empire and tremendous dis-ease for the early church. It was difficult to be a follower of Jesus in the early days. It was not part of the social fabric of that time. They stuck out like sore thumbs. They did not worship the imperial cult. They were deviating from orthodox Judaism, they were trying to find their footing. And so Paul here writes to Timothy in an effort to teach him how to lead this church in that time. That's what this book is all about. What does it look like to be the church of Jesus Christ in first and second century Asia Minor during the time of the Roman Empire. Now, a few notes about this particular scripture. So the first seven verses of the second chapter in 1 Timothy. There's a lot going on here. And the first thing I want to point out is when you look at 1 Timothy, You don't necessarily think prophetic text. It reads like a book or a letter in which the writer, Paul, is basically telling Timothy to keep keep the peace. Lead a quiet and peaceable life. Keep your head down. But there's actually some prophetic pieces in these scriptures. In this text, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, I would point to verse 5, for there is one God. Okay, that to us as 21st century people may not feel that prophetic, but to call God, that is to say the God of Jesus Christ, to say that there is one God, and in the previous chapter to say that This God is the king of all the ages. That was a prophetic piece. Because we have to remember that the Roman emperor was seen as divine, as someone to be worshipped. To say that the God of Jesus was not the emperor, was in fact superior to that emperor, was a prophetic and, dare I say, gutsy thing to do. 
So from the very beginning, the church was in the business of taking risk and for calling power out for what it was. The power does not lie in the body politic. The power lies with God. There's also here in, in this scripture, there's emphasis, and it's easy again to, to overlook this in verse 5. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, that emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. It was not fully accepted in early church times that Jesus was in fact human at all. There were those who disputed that. Now, what we say these days is that Jesus was both fully human and fully God. Because he was fully human, he understands and understood what it means to be a human of flesh and blood. It is one of the beautiful things about our faith. We call that the incarnation. Jesus put on flesh to be with us, a.k.a. God with us, Emmanuel. That's what that means. But that was not always the widely accepted theology of Jesus. Again, you see in this letter a church, if you look for it, you see a church that's trying to find and discover who she is in that time. I had a conversation recently with some folks, and maybe this is something you can talk about wherever you are, can think about it. Would love for you to engage us on social. This emphasis on Jesus' humanity, why does that matter? Why is that important? What does it mean that he was fully human, and what might it mean for us to be fully human? What does that phrase even mean, fully human? Because clearly his humanity was important to Paul. The other thing I want to point out about this scripture is there's a theme in it. In the first verse, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Verse 3 This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved. Verse 6, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. There is a focus here upon the wide reach, the wide expanse, not only of God's love, but of God's salvific power, which is to say God's ability to save any and all. Now, I would wager that we have all been caught up in conversations about who's in and who's out. When did you get saved? Are you saved? I'm not so sure you're saved. People historically have debated this theology of salvation, the fancy word, 
being soteriology. And there are different branches of soteriology. There is exclusivism, which is to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes through the Father but through him, i.e., you must believe and claim Jesus as your own to get into heaven to be saved. There is inclusivism, which is the idea that, okay, you may not be aware of the gospel. You may, in fact, reject it, but God's love still, through Jesus Christ, will save you and redeem you. There's also universalism, which is this notion that no matter your faith or lack thereof, there are paths to God through different means, through different faiths. So inclusivism is more, we all might be saved, but it's through Jesus. It's because of Jesus, the mediator for all of us. And universalism says all religions work, and we're all saved. Now, where you fall in that might be an interesting conversation, But it does appear here in 1 Timothy that God's will, God's desire, is for everyone to be saved. How does that sit with you? Is that your interpretation of this passage? It is interesting to me that Paul, when in, in this letter, encourages Timothy to pray for everyone, including for kings and for all who are in high positions. Keep in mind, the kings and all who are in high positions might not have been and probably did not support early Christians. In fact, it was the powerful who marginalized and persecuted early followers of the Christian way. And so when Paul urges Timothy to tell his congregation to pray for everyone, including kings and those in high positions, what Paul was really saying was, don't just pray for your leaders, but pray for those who we are tempted to hate and who might hate on us. Pray for those who persecute us. Which is to say, the God we worship is a God that, who is bigger than we can all imagine. This is a God for all. This is a God who desires everyone. I heard a quote that it is very difficult to hate somebody who you pray for. It is almost as if Paul is encouraging Timothy, when you pray for your enemies, you will not be filled with spite and hatred for them, but only grace and mercy and love, in spite of what they may do for you. This pushes us, if we are being honest. And it is what makes the church countercultural, or it's what's supposed to make the church countercultural. In a world that can feel 
filled with hatred and vengeance and spite, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. Even now, for kings and people in high positions, whether we voted for them or not, we are supposed to pray for them. No matter how they may treat us. Now, please understand, this is not an invitation to accept the hatred of others, the oppression for others, to be passive passerbys. That is not how I read this text. To be followers of Jesus is to stand up for justice and for what is right and to call it what it is. And still in the midst of that and at the root of all that is supposed to be prayer. So again, always good to see what's happening in context. What's the scene here? And how does it preach to us in the here and now? Who do we need to be in prayer for? Who, if we're being honest, do we have a problem with when it comes to this notion that God desires everyone be saved? Why does that strike discord within us I think Paul wrote this letter to Timothy because he knew that being the church isn't easy and so just as he encouraged Timothy to keep moving forward so do I say the same to you wherever it is you're listening to this we thank you for joining us again on this episode of Catechesis, a production of Lewis and Broad Media. For Leighton Parker, my name is James Goodlett. Remember who and whose you are, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us this week at Catechesis. Follow along on our social media and our websites at fpclagrange.org and lewisandbroad.org. Until next week.